Hey guys, Zach here. Uh, just wanted to take a quick moment before we started the show to tell you a little bit about our upcoming series. We will be doing a listener's choice series. Uh, we have three weeks before our end of the year top 10 rundown that we always do, and we wanted to use those three weeks to kind of get to know you guys, the listeners, and, and learn a little bit about how you got in touch with the show and uh, what your feelings are about how we're doing so far. Uh, and we're going to take this opportunity to let you suggest movies to us. We're looking for we're looking for what you think we should be watching. Uh, if you have a suggestion, please email us at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Cinematary.com. Again, that's Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Cinematary.com. You know, no criteria for the movies. Just give us a few suggestions. You know, write a quick sentence about who you are, what you do, and where you found out about the podcast. We're curious. Uh, we'll probably be shutting down suggestions on December 9th. So please submit them until then, and uh, yeah, let's get on to the show. And welcome to episode 223 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with Michael O'Malley and Lydia Creech. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Directed by Nicholas Ray series with 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, we don't have too much this week in part one, so this might be a little bit of a shorter episode. But I will direct you to some writing we have on Cinematary.com. We have a review of Creed 2 by myself, which I'm about to talk about more extensively. We also have a review of Green Book by Courtney Anderson. Uh, really good review of Green Book. Do not want to watch Green Book after reading that review. <laughs> but also you can check out uh, the Battle of Buster Scruggs review by Lydia. And Michael O'Malley is going to be writing about Wreck-It Ralph 2 Breaks... Re- Re- sorry. Ralph Breaks Ralph the Internet. Breaks the internet <laughs> colon Wreck-It Ralph and 2. And Zach's brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he'll be writing about that. It'll be up on Monday let's go ahead and jump into uh these movies the first the one i saw is creed 2 is the sequel to creed <laughs> i don't know why i said this <laughs> in case you were confused <laughs> um, it's this time it's directed by stephen capel jr uh, ryan coogler was busy making black panther so he did not return he just came back in a producing credit for this one uh, following the events of Creed II, Adonis, who's played by Michael B. Jordan, is now the light heavyweight cha- champion of the world. He is on top, but while he is on top, uh, the son of Ivan Drago, who people know from the fourth Rocky movie, has been, uh, has been training his son, uh, Victor. And Victor, is, is they're kind of looking to get back in the limelight uh, since that the events of Rocky IV, it's, uh, they're now living kind of a little bit in exile, I guess you could say. They're, you find them in public housing in U- the Ukraine, which, you know, a little bit testy to have a whole Ukraine-Russian thing going on in a movie right now in November 2018, but that's a whole other thing. It does They don't really, you know, get into that. Um, but he's he's been, he's been training in order to kind of get back to the good graces that he once had as the star athlete in Russia, and so he's been training up his son to to kind of hit the circuit and and reclaim that glory. And by doing that, he they decide to to get a fight with Adonis Creed, and naturally Adonis kind of takes the bait and decides to uh, 
you know fight because natural because of course his his father Apollo was killed in the ring in Rocky Four by Ivan Drago, so he he fights Victor does not go well in the first one but gets disqual there's disqualification so it does not count goes trains himself back up has a kid that's all in the whole that's all in the process of training up he also has a child which is a whole other thing and then uh, has another fight. I wrote about this on the site, as Lydia was saying off mic. I seemed very mean about it. I was very mean about that one portion of it. I didn't dislike this movie. I enjoyed it. It's not as good as Creed. You can immediately tell just from the first uh, time you see Adonis that uh, it's not Creed. Um, Ryan Coogler in the first one, like you, he has that first appearance by Adonis, and it's like this him kind of psyching himself up shot uh, as he as he does this this fight in Mexico and he the camera is constantly trailing right behind the back of his head um, he shoots a lot of the fights and the preparation for the fights with these oneers and uh, I think that it's it's kind of a, a, a trick that it seems like a lot of filmmakers are doing nowadays and it can kind of seem um, a little overplayed uh i feel like the way kugler does it though adds to just the uh the, the intensity the the physicality of these fights uh, he he does the entire second fight of the first creed in in this one take that's just really visceral and just kind of uh doesn't let up at any point and Stephen Capel Jr. does not... He, he shoots it relatively traditionally. I mean, this it feels shot in the same way as you would see any kind of generic boxing movie, which was... It's disappointing just because of how well-directed Creed was. And so that... You immediately can tell that. Um, I, I talked about it a little bit in my review, but the, the, the thing that really struck me about the first Creed was it's how it kind of... It really zeroes in on what it means, what masculinity means uh, in in the modern age, and uh, this one kind of tries to do that. I'm not sure it really hits the 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 level of the first one or the level that it's really trying to aspire to, and I get into that in my review. But at the same time, I think it's still a very entertaining movie. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's really good in this role. Sylvester Stallone is, is good in this one. He's not nearly as good as he was in the first Creed. They give uh, Felicia Rashad and Tessa Thompson a little bit more to do in this one. Um, I really have been impressed with like the different range of Tessa Thompson recently. You know, you have like the first Creed, and then you have Thor Ragnarok, and then you have Annihilation. And then you have Sorry to Bother You, and then you have Creed Two, and all of those are, you know, very different roles from the the one before it. Like, uh, she's kind of just been all over the place and has been really good in all of these in all of those movies. Um, but overall, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see what they do next. I saw that they that Sylvester Stallone said he's like retiring from Rocky or whatever. He had some whole video and. I don't really necessarily buy that. Um, I think that now, I think if they decide to go that route, it would be good because a lot of what bogs both the both Creed movies honestly down a little bit is this um, is this is the legacy just of Rocky that uh, it kind of has to live up to, and it feels like uh, 
um, both Creed 1 and Creed 2 are having to fit into the mold of a Rocky movie when I kind of would like to see them transcend that because I think that the character of Adonis and and just kind of the having this uh, predominantly African-American cast is really interesting. It should transcend kind of the boxes that the franchise has been in up to this point. Um, so if he is going to be like done with the role, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see the, the series after that. I think that it can, it still could have life and be something really effective and, uh, and just, you know, continue to be one of the stronger franchises out there without Rocky Balboa in it. But I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not super buying that he's done. <laughs> These people never are. It isn't maybe a dumb question, but is Ryan Coogler involved with Creed 2 at all? He's a producer. Oh, okay. I mean, he was, yeah. I, I listened to an interview with Michael B. Jordan, and he was like, yeah, he he was like, while they were kind of planning this and, and getting this all ready, he was doing editing and such for Black Panther. So he was real deep in the weeds with that, which I'm not mad about because I liked Black Panther a lot, so I was glad to see that. But I also would have liked to see him kind of continue with this character in the story. Um, I will say, though, that I was really astonished that this did not seep itself too deeply into like Rocky four callbacks. I feel like some people might disagree with me. I, I felt like it was pretty tame and honestly, Dolph Lundgren and the guy, let me get his name, uh, Florian, uh, Montanu who played, uh, Victor Drago were really good. I, I, Victor Drago probably says six words in the entire movie, <laughs> but the no, but his facial acting is fantastic. His eyes and and the facial expressions he makes, immediate like just completely tell the story of this character because you can really tell this tension between Ivan Drago, who's played by Dolph Lundgren, who desperately wants to kind of get back into that. Uh, ru- that glory that he had for Russia in Rocky Four, and is using his son to kind of catalyst him into that. And you have the son who, you know, is not completely against this career path, but d- feels you can tell just by the way he reacts to stuff that he 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 can tell that his father is not doing this for him; that it's he's doing it for himself. And that makes kind of how the 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 final fight culminates and how their storyline ends much more affecting than you get with like the Adonis storyline. So I was really, I was really taken with how well they did. Um, but yeah, Creed two, if it's, I, I, I would say check it out, but uh, a little bit of a step down from the first Creed. I hope Ryan Coogler will come back to this series because Ryan Coogler is immensely talented, but do Apollo Creed's American flag pants make a return? <laughs> Rocky four. <laughs> They do, and interestingly enough, he goes with. Uh, and I thought, and this is why I'm like, they need to just the, the, he because he needs to transcend it. It's he's it's not it's not the 80s or the you know, 70s or 80s America. He he ditches the uh, red, white, and blue pants which he wears for the first two fights of this movie for like these black and white American flag pants, but like the, but well, it's like black <laughs> and gray. It's like it, it's. It's super. It was. I thought it was a really cool choice, and it again it shows that this franchise is is on a wavelength that's much more different than really what the other Rocky movies were were trying to reckon with. I think, and that's why I'm like, 
it's okay if Rocky goes. We can. There's there's much more interesting things we could be dealing with than, uh, you know, poor sad old Rocky. But Sylvester, he's fine. Um, Michael, I'm gonna toss it to you. Uh, talk a little bit about Wreck It Ralph too. Yeah, uh, Ralph breaks the internet. The poorly titled sequel to is it 2012's Wreck It Ralph? Is that when Wreck It Ralph came out? Yeah, it's the sequel to Wreck It's been a while. The sequel to Wreck It Ralph. They make a there's a line in the movie where they allude to how long ago it's been. I think it's six years. Anyway, they should not do that. <laughs> there's a lot of things that this movie does that it maybe shouldn't <laughs> should do. not oh, uh, oh. <laughs> i mean just as a i mean as a this movie's like fine um it's not like a, a disaster um maybe this is gonna sound like what you're talking about zach's creed 2 review is like but but man this is a weird movie so i feel like that when i saw this film an important bit of like like maybe a an indication of what i was about to be in for was that um in the theater where I was, I don't know if this is standard uh, throughout the country where Wreck-It Ralph 2 is, or, or Ralph Breaks the Internet, damn it, um, is showing is that I, I yeah, the, so I, I, I saw the, the Toy Story 4 teaser, right, which is like got the Judy Collins version of Both Sides Down, they're all kind of like dancing in a circle, right? And so that happens, and there's like two more trailers, and then there's another trailer that doesn't begin with like the uh, MPAA sign. And so I think at first this is like, oh, this, is this going to be my short before my film? And it's these two um, uh, like uh, stuffed animals in a carnival kind of talking to one another and just like talking about nonsense for a long time. And I, I, I'm wondering where this is going. And then one of them says, did you see that trailer? The other one says, no, what trailer? And the guy says, they're going to make Toy Story 4. And it turns out it's just a covert trailer for another Toy Story 4 advertisement. Um, it was extremely weird and and off-putting. And I feel like that sort of like set the stage for Wreck-It Ralph, which is like a lot of character banter that is kind of like stage setting for a bunch of... Um, Product placement, I guess. So so the plot is basically that Wreck-It Ralph from the first movie has now, like, you know, kind of uh, got a real comfortable life in the video arcade now because he's no longer, like, at the end of the first film, they are all accepting of villains now and, you know, they've learned how to get along and such. And so Wreck-It Ralph is having a great life. Um, and then uh, Princess Vanellope, the racer from the first one, voiced by Sarah Silverman, um she is starting to get bored with her game because she's figured out all the tracks and all that. Um, and so one thing leads to another, but basically like her game ends up breaking because she's bored with it. And uh, Ralph is intent on fixing her game so she can have a home, but uh, Vanellope is intent on like broader horizons. And so they go on the internet, uh, Vanellope with the intent of like seeing you know new things in the world but ralph with the intent of fixing her game and bringing her back to the arcade and i mean this is it like takes like probably like 30 minutes of a two-hour animated movie for them to even get to the internet that ralph breaks um and along along the way you know of course there's like the whole like cavalcade of like video game references which is like fine um because that's like how the first one was and it's like fun to see like I don't know, like like Pac-Man show up and, and whatever. Um, but then they get to the internet, 
And it gets weird because like, it's one thing to say, hey, look, it's Pac-Man or Sonic. It's like another thing to say, hey, look, there's eBay or hey, look, there's Amazon, right? You know, like these aren't characters that were like endeared from other media from they're They're like things that we recognize on the internet as like presences on the internet. Um, so they go into the internet and this is whole visualized space. And the movie does this really, I don't know. It's just, it's just strange. Like there's a narrative that's going on, but it's also like funneling you through like kind of what feels like kind of forced and like requisite brand management by Disney. And then like to offset that some like other brands that are equally big, um, like Twitter plays like a huge role in the movie at one point. Um, like there's a place which is where like if you saw the trailer for Wreck-It Ralph there was like the scene where Vanellope goes in and she sees all the princesses and they have their little like meta moment where they kind of like spell out all the princess movie tropes but that whole scene exists because there's a place in the movie where like for not really a very justified reason Vanellope is like where should I go next oh look there's a big old Disney fan website let me walk through this Disney fan website and there's like a 10 minute sequence of the movie that's her walking through this Disney fan site. And so there's like stormtroopers running around and Marvel characters like Groot is there. Uh, and then she runs into the princess room and there's this weird, like kind of like double faced thing that I, I'm planning on writing about where uh, Disney's like kind of poking fun at itself, as you might've noticed in the the trailer, you know, the princesses are kind of like, poking fun at like some of the the tropes, but also it's like very, very clearly like Disney maintaining its brand as well. And there's this weird thing where Disney is making itself and it's, it's like princess brand look better by making fun of its princess brand. Cause it's signaling that it's savvy to the critiques that have been made, but at the same time, it's not really meaningfully addressing those critiques it's just acknowledging them. And we're supposed to be like, Oh, haha, Disney realizes that it has, tropes in its princess movie and then after all that there's like a second plot of the movie that takes the back half of the movie so i don't know this is a strange movie it's a giant mess of a film that is like balancing all these themes and capitalist concerns and and corporate concerns and none of it really comes together like some of it's really creative like i, I really like the way that the internet's visualized it has like the users on the internet are kind of visualized as kind of these, um, like, uh, avatar kind of things that walk around, like, um, you know, kind of, in, you know, you can clearly tell they're avatars, right? They're not like really characters. They just walk around kind of in straight lines and, and turn their heads at 90 degree angles and things like that. And, um, some of the stuff is also fun. Like there's, um, there's like a character who's a pop-up, um, and you know, he's, he's, got like a sign and, and there's this like mechanic in the internet where if you like touch different signs, it like, you know, like a link, it'll take you to different parts of the internet world. And, you know, there's some really in like ingenious little like designs of in the movie, as far as like how it renders like the internet and what we're familiar with in the internet. Um, and eventually it gets into like how the internet like weaponizes insecurities in people and, and gets into some really kind of visually interesting stuff with like, this giant uh, Goliath version of Ralph that is like comprised of little smaller versions of Ralph that are all like insecurities that he has. Um, and it's, it's really strange. Um, and as a movie, it's all really strange too, but I, I'm kind of rambling here because it, the movie itself is 
kind of rambly. And it it's like two hours, which is like, that's on the upper end of Disney animated features. I don't know how long. That's a lot for a kid. That's a lot for anybody. And it's two hours because they've mushed together all these things. Like, it's not like two hours of like a single story arc. It's, it's, it's this weird, like Frankenstein of a movie. Now, uh, I've watched a bunch of um, Lindsay Ellis's video essays about Disney, and she kind of talks about Disney's whole, um, especially recent surge of yeah of of meta commentary, where it's kind of commenting on its own tropes and and stories. And so I'm curious, especially since you did you you kind of had your quest through Disney this past summer. Um, where do you, where do you kind of lean on that? What what's what is your what is your thoughts on especially kind of the I guess I guess you could say Lasseter era Disney where you know starting with Tangled where it became much more self referential and it seems like it's constantly kind of playing on each other. Yeah, well, even if you go like the Lasseter era starts with um, Meet the Robinsons, like that's the first one where like. Like the last era sort of begins when you start seeing the Steamboat Willie logo in front of the animation. Like that's the movie, first movie he had anything to do with, and and even that like like Lasseter's thing was we want to remind people of what Disney used to be while at the same time kind of carving out like a modern brand. And so there's like definitely like a there's this weird mix of like there's critique with the nostalgia element to it, but I guess like I get a little bit irritated by some of Disney's recent like meta commentary. Um, because it, it sometimes feels unnecessarily self-aggrandizing of Disney in the sense that it's like, oh, look how, look how progressive we are now. To which I say, like, I don't begrudge progressiveness in Disney, but Disney has always positioned itself as progressive. Like it thought, like Disney thought that Song of the South was progressive because of how many black people it employed and things like that. Um, and. There's also this irritating thing where Disney intentionally kind of like flattens a lot of its previous movies so that it can like poke fun at the previous movies while making its newer movies look good. And like, I feel like a example is the princess scene in Wreck-It Ralph that's in the trailers where they all kind of make fun of the princess tropes. But Disney has been making fun of princess tropes for for quite a while, um, including some of the movies they make fun of, right? So like Beauty and the Beast, for example, uh, that movie is a whole like deconstruction of like the male savior myth and and like you know all the princess tropes right and so like Beauty and the Beast is a is Disney already like thinking critically about like what are our tropes in Disney movies and how do we want to subvert them and so then this new wave of like Tangled etc comes along and pretends like it's revolutionary to say what if you know a woman didn't need a man to save her or you know etc cetera, etc cetera, when I mean, Disney's done that for a long time. And so it seems like Disney is like setting up this false progress where it's like, we're going to pretend like our older movies don't have these kind of thematic wrinkles in the interest of making people think that our new movies have this new take on stuff. And some of it is kind of new, like Frozen's uh, kind of, you know, sister bonding. That's kind of new for Disney and stuff like that. But definitely not a scene like in Wreck-It Ralph where, you know, the whole point is just... You know, oh, we're princesses and we're helpless, and let's subvert that by making us save a man at the end. You know that that's something that Disney's been dealing with for for decades, and I, I find it really uninteresting that they're still on that note. Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting also just kind of listening to you describe the movie of like this kind of faux progressiveness that Disney's gotten into because 
and this and this is true of a lot of not just like their animated stuff, but also their live action stuff and their. Um, I would include the Marvel and Star Wars stuff also, where there's kind of this. Yeah, Lindsay Ellis has a really good video on the live action Beauty and the Beast, how the faux progressiveness doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Well, you have that. I think that there's kind of like this anti-establishment capitalism bent in Star Wars: The Last Jedi with with this the whole um, uh, Finn and Rose sequence where they're in this like they're in this casino with all of the uh the weapons hey, with the war that profiteers are yeah, yeah they're, they're tr- who are trading to both sides and, and so you have all of this commentary but then and you're like oh this is really interesting but also it's disney like disney is kind of the perpetrator of all of these things that you're commenting on so what I don't know. Is is it's not it's not entire it's not subversive at all because it's not like you're cutting in into the the system or whatever. It seems like you're like they're controlling the narrative of this subversiveness, and that makes so it looks progressive, but it's not. If that makes sense. Well, and they're keeping <laughs> it on a short. No, yeah, and they're keeping it on a short leash too, because like. Like I was saying, in, in Wreck-It Ralph 2, the princess scene, like the subversion of the princess tropes is at the end, they save Ralph. I guess spoilers, you know, all the princesses come together. And the princesses haven't done anything in this movie except have that scene where they say, oh, look at all our tropes, including the trope that most of us were saved by men. And then they save the man at the end, which is like a very short leash to take your progressive princess brand to, you know... Uh, not even dealing with, you know, a lot of the other problems with it. And I feel, I felt the same about Last Jedi, honestly, where there's like all this really interesting stuff about like in the mid movie about how they're going to like really blow up the Star Wars paradigm. And, you know, is, is this idea of a solitary hero saving everybody really worthwhile or should we lean more into collective action? And then at the end, you know, Ray saves everybody solitarily. Um, you know, and so I, I think there's this idea that they like kind of throw out kind of like interesting, interesting thought experiments, but they never let those thought experiments culminate with anything subversive. Um, it's still just, um, you know, it's, it's still within the, under the umbrella. It's just referenced some of the critiques. Yeah. No, it's. I don't know. I don't know what to make of of what Disney's doing. It kind of confounds and irritates me, but it, I don't really, I don't, I don't feel like it, I can, uh, <laughs> I can uh, make clear sense of it to to make a point. So I don't know. This Wreck It Ralph two seems like it'd be frustrating. <laughs> it is frustrating, and it's frustrating because there's like like with Wreck It Ralph two or like the entire like modern Disney animated canon. There's like legitimately very good things that they're doing, right? Like, I mean, Disney has never been great at race and there's still problems with race, but it is, Disney has gone, has taken the critiques of its, its, you know, casting, you know, in movies dealing with people of color and stuff to heart. And, and I think ways that have actually paid out pretty decently, you know, for, for all their problems. And, and that's what makes it frustrating is it feels like a like not one step forward, two steps back, but like maybe two steps forward, one step back. Um, because they're, some of their stuff is like legitimately helpful, especially when, if you're going to control most of the media landscape in America, you might as well be making progressive decisions while you're a monopolistic, you know, 
corporation. <laughs> but yeah, wreck it off too. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Let's move See on. See it or not. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, look, I will say I was complaining about uh, actually to Andrew, who's not on the podcast today. I was complaining right before I saw it that, you know, I just feel like there's Disney doesn't do weird movies anymore. You know, we're not going to get just a strange like movie like what they were doing in the 2000s, you know, like whatever. But and I will say this is a weird, messy movie in the style of like some of the like Disney Dark Age stuff that people talk about. Well, Let's, let's let's get into the the real movie of the moment and that's Shozu Shozo a cat and two women which Lydia you watched on Filmstruck Rest in Peace before <laughs> Rest in Peace This is a weird movie. So it was sold to me like the one line elevator pitch whatever is Shozo is a guy who prefers spending time with his cat to either of his two wives like he starts out the movie with one wife and then he gets another one but like he just wants to hang out with his cat lily (laughs) and (laughs) and that sounds really adorable and kind of like quirky but it it was sad it made me sad um this is a 1956 movie um and so kind of the conflict between the all of the characters, I guess, is he and his mother, who he lives with, and then his first wife, she's kind of a sort of traditional Japanese lady. She wears a kimono and is like a very good housekeeper, like, I guess, the Japanese version of a 1950s housewife. But she's not very rich. She's just hardworking. So the mother kind of conspires to kick her out and just divorce get her son to divorce this lady and he doesn't really fight his mom he's like i just want to hang out with lily my cat i love you lily he meows at the cat i don't like it's a bizarre performance (laughs) um and he's also having an affair with this other woman who eventually becomes a second wife and she's like a very modern japanese girl she's like always running around in a bathing suit and like a cover-up and she doesn't know how to cook anything or do cleaning but she's rich. Her family is rich. And so the mother's like, you should marry this girl because we're poor. <laughs> I need money. And it's kind of this, I don't know, like it comes down to themes of old, I guess, values kind of versus new values. And this like really kind of lazy, stupid guy is <laughs> caught in the middle of it. Or cat values. Um. The first wife conspires, like, she tries to steal the cat because she's got this crazy idea that her husband will come back to her because she's got the cat. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and then she kind of falls in love with the cat a little bit. And I'm just like, this poor cat. There's a lot of cat throwing around. Like, the new wife hates this fucking cat. (laughs) She's always... Like, throwing her out of the room and, like, complaining about the cat eating fish. <laughs> Just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> but it made me really sad in the end because I was like, I don't understand why these two women want to be with this dude so bad because he's, like, just, like, it's really obvious <laughs> how little he cares for either of them. And it... 
I don't know. The second wife is played by her name. Is, the actress's name is Kyoko Kagawa. She is the, I think, sister character in Tokyo Story. The one that Setsukahara is like, yes, life is disappointing too. And so it's inter- it was interesting because I saw her on screen like oh, in yeah, these yeah. bathing suits and like acting really crazy and being. Uh, kind of irresponsible and I was like oh my god she's so familiar and I think one of the things that the director did was cast against type for all of the roles I'm not that familiar with 1950s actors and actresses but the first wife character I think was like a very well-known actress and then the mother character is just like a character she's like stingy and you know it's like the shrewish old woman who just is concerned with money uh, so it was like good, strange performances all around. There's a good cat performance. <laughs> That's what I was gonna ask. How was the cat performance? Uh, I mean, I felt bad for the cat again because there's like a lot of that cat gets thrown around a bunch. But then there's like a scene where the cat runs away in the rain, and like the first wife gets all distraught. She's like, oh, "I didn't care about this cat. I gotta find it again." <laughs> And I think it's a lovely story, like human cat love. I'm here for it. Just <laughs> leave leave him to his self and the cat. And also he's really sad because the cat's old and like dying and that keeps coming up. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, why can't you form meaningful human relationships, dude? So Because he's, he's in love with his cat. And, like, nobody accepts it. None of the women around him are, like, cool with that. (laughs) I really don't know how people are going to watch this movie. I think it might be a part of the Criterion Collection, so possibly could buy the DVD, but I I don't know. Maybe when Filmstruck comes back, or not comes back, whatever, the Criterion Channel, when they launch that next year, like, maybe it'll be on there. It's such a strange movie. I I really do recommend it. I want to watch it. I'm upset now even more about Filmstruck leaving. Just for that. <laughs> I mean, I think I want to be in love with a cat. That seems like a viable life choice. <laughs> like like it seems like the cat probably would take, you know, take care of you and and you know, do a good job. Be there for you and listen to you. Yeah, well, maybe not, but <laughs> Listen while you talk at it. Yeah. All right. Well, and at least it wouldn't be self-referential, you know? Taking it all back. All right, we're going to take a short break. We will be back talking about 1955's Rebel Without a Cause after this. Hey, Cinematariots. This is your co-host, Lydia Creech, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time either. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company, and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a review on iTunes, four or five stars only, (laughs) to help us reach more listeners per the algorithm gods. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, so we can hear from you guys for a change. 
I'd especially like to hear if you're a human and not an android who also likes Blade Runner, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie you would really like to hear our opinions on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes of the show. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions that we bring to you guys every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and please share with your friends and family. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. episode 223 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Directed by Nicholas Ray series with 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, this comes from a script by Stuart Stern, and it stars James Dean, Natalie Wood, and Sal Mineo. Uh, after moving to a new town, troublemaking team Jim Stark is supposed to have a clean slate, although being a new kid in town brings its own problems. While searching for some stability, Stark performs a bond with a disturbed classmate, Plato, and falls for local girl, Judy. However, Judy is the girlfriend of neighborhood tough Buzz. When Buzz violently confronts Jim and challenges him to a drag race, the new kid's real troubles begin. The title was adopted from psychiatrist Robert M. Lindner's uh, 1944 book, Rebel Without a Cause, the Hype... Hypoanalysis of a Criminal Psychopath. The book was a case study of a young man named Harold who was then an inmate at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. The film, however, does not make any references to the book in any way. Warner Brothers had bought the rights to Lindner's, uh, Lindner's, Lindner's? Yeah, yeah. book, uh, intending to use, a, to use the title for a film. Attempts to create a film version in the late 1940s eventually ended without a film or even a full script being produced. When Marlon Brando did a five-minute screen test for the studio in 1947, he was given fragments of one of the partial scripts. However, Brando was not auditioning for Rebel Without a Cause, and there was no offer of any part made by the studio. The film, as it later appeared, was the result of a totally new script written in the 1950s that had nothing to do with the Brando test. The screen test is included on a 2006 special edition DVD of the 1951 film A Streetcar Named Desire. Theodore Seuss Geisel, better known today as Dr. Seuss, wrote the first draft of the script. So just, like, play that in your mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> Among the top contenders for the part of Judy at the time were Debbie Reynolds, Carol Baker, Lois Smith, one of the studio's top choices, and Jane Mansfield, who Ray report reportedly actively resisted casting. According to a biography of Natalie Wood, she almost did not get the role of Judy because Nicholas Ray thought that she did not fit the role of the wild teen character. While on a night out with friends, she got into a car accident. Upon hearing this, Ray rushed to the hospital. While in del uh, delirium, Wood overheard the doctor murmuring and calling her a goddamn juvenile delinquent. She soon yelled to Ray, Did you hear what he called me, Nick? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? 
Though the studio apparently considered Tab Hunter for the role of Jim at one point, Ray was intrigued by James Dean, who had yet to make his mark on Hollywood, but had already shot his role as Caleb in East of Eden, which Ray saw early screenings of. Impressed with Dean, Ray wanted to cast him as the lead in Revel, but another of Dean's soon-to-be legendary films was standing in the way. Giant, which was all set to start shooting at this time, that would conflict with Revel's production. Then a fortuitous development in the life of another of Giant's stars changed everything. Elizabeth Taylor was pregnant, which meant the film had to be delayed until June of 1955. The film was banned in New Zealand in 1955 by chief censor Gordon Mirams out of fears that it would incite teenage delinquency, only to be released on appeal the following year with scenes cut. In Britain, the film was released with an X rating with scenes cut. Ray and Dean both placed a lot of emphasis on the realism of each moment in Rebel Without a Cause, and Dean's method acting meant he wanted to place himself in the most authentic situations possible. Because the film is sometimes violent, that meant Dean often engaged in real physical violence for the part, and sometimes sometimes didn't make it out unscathed. For the scene in which Jim drunkenly pounds on the desk in the police station, Dean apparently actually got drunk and then pounded the desk as hard as he could, breaking bones in his hand and leaving Ray forced to shoot around the bandages. Then, there is the switchblade fight between Jim and Buzz, which was done with real blades, though certain precautions were taken. Dean can be seen in production stills placing padding under his shirt. At one point while shooting the fight, Alan reached out and actually cut Dean. Ray, alarmed that his star had been injured, called cut, and Dean was furious. Quote, Jimmy gets furious and grabs Nick and says, Don't ever, ever, ever say cut. Don't ever, ever say cut to me. I'll say cut if something's wrong. Don't you ever cut the scene. Co-star Dennis Hopper later recalled. In the review in Variety 1955, they said, Here is a fairly exciting, suspenseful, and provocative, if also occasionally far-fetched, melodrama of unhappy youth or on another delinquency kick. The plot bears no resemblance to the content of a book of the same title published a few years ago. The book was a clinical study of a withdrawn boy. The film presents a boy whose rebellion against a weakling father and shrewish mother expresses itself in boozing, knife-fighting, and other forms of physical combat and testing of his own manhood. The New York Times said, There are some excruciating flashes of accuracy and truth in this film. However, we do wish the young actors, including Mr. Dean, had not been so intent on imitating Marlon Brando in varying degrees. The tendency, possibly typical of the behavior of certain youths, may therefore be a subtle commentary, but it grows monotonous. And we'd be more convinced by Jim Backus and Ann Doran as parents of Mr. Dean if they weren't so obviously silly and ineffectual in treating with the in treating with the boy. There is too a pictorial slickness about the whole thing in color and cinemascope that battles at times with the realism in the direction of D- Nicholas Ray. In 2005, Roger Ebert said, "Seen today, Rebel Without a Cause plays like a Todd Solitz movie in which." Characters with bizarre problems perform a charade of normal behavior. Because of the way weirdness seems to bubble just beneath the surface of the melodramatic plot, because of the oddness of Dean's mannered acting and Mineo's narcissistic self-pity, because of the cluelessness of the hero's father, because of all of these apparent flaws, Rebel Without a Cause has a greater interest than if it had been tidier and more sensible. You can sense an energy trying to break through, emotions unexamined but urgent. Like its hero, Rebel Without a Cause desperately wants to say something and doesn't know what it is. If it did know, it would lose its fascination. More perhaps than it realized, it is a subversive document of its time. On that note, 
Um, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about with Rebel Without a Cause is that out of all of the movies that we we're going to talk about in this series, I feel like this is the most well-known of Nicholas Ray's. Probably is the most well-known. I mean, this is one that kind of, uh, you know, you think of James Dean and his red jacket as synonymous with movies. Um, and so I guess my question to, to kind of lead off is what about this movie do you feel like hits so uh so well with 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 movie fans like what what at why out of all of nicholas ray's movies would this be the one that kind of transcends just him and becomes one of the uh more well-known and beloved movies of all time well i mean i think a lot of it has to do with the kind of tragic fate of all three of the young teenage stars and i also don't think it's famous as a nicholas ray movie it like it's famous as like uh a vehicle for the icon i guess of james dean because he only ever made the three movies and so like i don't know if people watch it and then are consciously thinking of the director so much as the the stars like the star as auteur sort of i will say that i before this series i didn't make the connection between ray and rebel without a cause i knew nicholas ray from other movies and then i of course knew what rebel without a cause was but i knew it also as a james dean vehicle and i didn't know who directed it i was just gonna say i guess to that point like now looking at it in kind of the light of nicholas ray how would you compare it to some of his other i mean oh my god masculinity yeah overwhelmingly you know the masculinity or at least you know performative masculinity is it's some is is sort of like like a prison i mean the whole kind of comes through problem i guess with all of the characters is they don't have strong father figures (laughs) that's like a really reductive way of looking at that feeling uh it's just like you said, Michael, continuing Ray's project of like what what is a pot like how do you have a masculine identity? Like how do you quote unquote be a man? Uh I still don't know if he's answered it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know, this one is interesting because I I, I think that all, with James Dean, kind of the way that he goes about acting in this movie, especially compared to some of the the you know masculine characters that we've been looking at in this series so far, there's there's almost this kind of performative aspect to just James Dean the the persona, as well as like what it means to be a man, like it. Like, it, it, you're not really sure what James Dean is as a person as much as, James, you know, just him as a as a masculine human. Like, it, it, you also, you have, like, these two different lines that you're kind of threading over the course of the movie. And I think that that's what kind of makes it a little bit more interesting than the ones we've watched so far. Because even though we ha- we've had, like, you know, Robert Mitchum and... Uh, Humphrey Bo- I guess Humphrey Bogart in In a Lonely Place would be the closest um, comparison to it, but even there, like James Dean, like you said, he's only 
been in he was only in three movies i think that you at least have a body of work with humphrey bogart that you can kind of tell um what humphrey bogart is compared to james dean the parallel i guess to another nicholas ray character i was thinking of was from last week turkey like teenage guy is kind of suddenly confronted with different ways that he can choose to be an adult grown man and i mean turkey doesn't make it out of that particular crisis of identity uh but i guess james dean kind of does maybe maybe yeah i mean we're i mean one of the things i think it's important that he's like a teenager Uh right and so we see like an identity under construction and i mean that's true of like james dean the actoring persona since you know his career was so young and didn't actually progress any further really um but then also like the character you know we see i mean a lot of his wrestling in the movie was is how he's unsure as to how to um you know how how what behavior is is acceptable what behavior should i adopt in these situations you know um and i mean like i remember as a as a teenager like in especially like middle school you know you're kind of presented with here's what here's what it means to be a man and i mean a lot of that information is conflicting but i i do remember like there's like a particular moment in my life where i had to decide you know am i going to pursue these kind of you know, am I going to really throw myself into sports? Am I going to do all these things, you know, um, be kind of like performatively sexual and that sort of thing? Or am I just not going to deal with that? And I, I feel like we see James Dean's character, Jim, maybe at that moment, like where he's like having to wrestle with, you know, I'm not, you know, like when you're a, when you're younger, you deal with gender stereotypes as well, but there's sort of like a guilelessness to it where you don't actively make those decisions. Like you're not, aware of the forces working on you and so you're kind of oblivious to it and maybe some people remain oblivious but I I definitely felt as a teenager this sort of weight of like expectation versus like you know what I could actually do and like I I think that makes this character really interesting I mean Humphrey Bogart in in a lonely place he doesn't change his character is already established and it's our dawning realization as viewers and as other characters in the movie of who that character is um, that makes the movie dynamic. Whereas in this one, what makes the movie dynamic in some ways is that tension of who is this James Dean character going to become. And not just kind of, uh, not really, not only just his personality, but you also have kind of uh, this really undefined sexuality between him and the two characters with Natalie Wood and Salmoneo because you can tell that Salmoneo is is gay and you know clearly interested in in Jim as a character there was there was a quote I saw about him uh in the scenes when they're in the dilapidated mansion at the end of the movie where James Dean told him told Salmoneo to to look at him like he's looking at Natalie and uh, you kind of, like, there is just this kind of fluidity between the three characters that, because they define this fluidity throughout that scene at the, the mansion at the end, it makes the whole uh, kind of run to the end much more affecting because 
you feel this almost like like this this almost merge connective between the three of them that uh kind of just cuts loose and and you know leads to the to, to the very dramatic ending um but what did you guys make of kind of the the sexuality in play between between the three characters i mean this isn't uh nicholas ray's primary interest i guess but the thing about natalie wood's character like all of the sudden i guess confronted with the fact like part of her character arc slash struggle is like being very suddenly confronted with the fact that she's i guess a grown-ish in body woman and like now her dad treats her differently <laughs> can't yeah it's like grown girls don't act like that uh gross <laughs> and then her kind of acting out a little bit i guess in response to that and kind of figuring out what her place as a grown woman is i mean again that's not like ray's primary interest but he does touch on that a little bit in i think johnny guitar like exploring different ways to be a grown woman it's like vienna and emma and that sort of thing so and it's interesting also at the end there like they try to make a little makeshift family like uh, you know james jim's gonna be the dad and she'll be the mom and then i'm like i guess this weird kid is their kid i don't know uh how does this work so they are they have this idea of like a nuclear ish family and it's like no this is weird it doesn't work but what do you do about it but it kind of does. There's like this like bubble that's kind of. They're playing fantasy though. That's exactly. Doesn't last, exactly. It doesn't but last. And so like maybe the yeah. whole thing is a fantasy. Like they're actual real parents and mm-hmm. two kids and a white picket fence. I don't know. There's something kind of like weirdly like utopian about it for a second though. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, there's just the first majority of the movie is just so filled with like the pain of like the and it's it's not just like youth and revolt it's it's like you know there's a real pain of like what you know the the anguish that like not not anything like exactly bad is happening to these characters but there's just kind of this anguished like the nuclear family is making them anguished and so it's kind of kind of weirdly you, you there's like this weird kind of like beautiful like utopian like bubble that happens when they're kind of subverting that, you know, and saying like, you know, we have this weird like fluidy thing going on. I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like it's not exactly a recreation of the nuclear family. It's, it's this weird like subversion of it that doesn't lean into like some of the stuff that's, that's really twisting them up earlier in the movie. Uh, lean into those things or it subverts them in some way they still get this like really terrible harsh reality check about what they're trying to oh, do yeah. or what they want and then i guess they after this reality check are able better to settle into their roles because like james dean and his dad okay jim sorry jim and his dad finally like have a real conversation or whatever and i'm like i don't think a kid had to I don't think a gay kid had to die for this. Well, I it, oh, I don't know about this. There's a weirdly like demented element to it, right? Because like the kids just died, right. and then he's like, "Hey, this is um, I can't. Remember. Is it Judy? Is that the girl's name? Is that Natalie Wood? Oh, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, this is Judy. She's my friend." And all of a sudden, like these smiles break across his parents' face. That like a very 
like uh, there's like literally a dead dude just laying there and and they're just so happy because like the implication is like our son is normal now he has a girlfriend and there's something like really demented about that at the end of the movie that like i don't know i i feel like it's like super unsettling and it's not it's not them settling into roles it's them like with the you know the violent excision of like you know uh atypical you know whatever sexuality from their lives are now like kind of with nothing left but those roles yeah that feels good (laughs) (laughs) i (laughs) it's it's like yeah it's a real adulthood is a trap It's like, well, it's like, it's like the Plato characters, like they're Jesus, like he died for their, you know, platonic happiness. Thanks, Plato. He died so they could be miserable baby boomers <laughs> later on. And vote for Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, James Dean's character probably votes for Trump because that dude died. votes for Trump. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that, it's all making sense now. <laughs> I kind of want to kind of go back to the uh to, to kind of where this movie uh opens up a little bit because you're introduced to james dean's character in such a uh strange way as he's playing with this doll while the opening credits roll and then he is arrested for drunkenness um and then you have this whole scene taking place in the uh, police station where all of the three main characters are there for odd reasons that don't really seem resolved. They're just kind of there. Uh, what did you make of the opening of this film? It's, <laughs> it took me a little while to kind of settle into what it was. I forgot that the reason that uh, Sal, Plato's character, the character of Plato, is in there is because he shot some puppies and i guess his nanny was like oh fuck go to the police uh and he's always doing like weird disturbing things and i don't know sorry to get away from your question zach but like i don't know if the characterization of plato is i mean he's very like queer coded but also like does disturbing shit and i'm like not yeah, quite sure what ray is doing with that like why he, he he's a much you know there's all of the the you know kids quote are troubled in this but his is is clearly the most like outward affecting others trouble uh because I mean, James Dean is is much is is kind of volatile, but he seems to at least be in check to a degree compared to the actions that that Plato takes in this. I mean, at least part of like, I mean, this movie is probably like pitched in part on like, you know, so we're gonna like, really get to the heart of poor Plato. These you know juvenile delinquents these days. So maybe like just by foregrounding the those crimes you know there i mean there might be just a lurid element to it the youth <laughs> kids these days killing their puppies and then also the police chief accuses natalie wood of i guess trying to pick an older dude up to get back at her dad it's <laughs> like it's like what are you saying she's a teenage prostitute i <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
mean, I guess it's kind of this comment on like all these adults offering these like to really own, own her father. <laughs> uh, insulting, I guess, reasons for the way these kids are acting out. And then when you're a teenager and you're acting out like those reasons, you would not pick those reasons out for yourself and in fact would be quite insulted. I think the introduction of the characters, and especially like James Dean's character, because he comes in like, you know, drunk and acting in ways that are kind of off-putting and alien, like banging the table and stuff. Like, it's it's the there's a weird like structural thing in the movie where it presents these characters at their worst, you know, they're least likable at the beginning, and then like finds a back door into like compassion and like the soulfulness of them, and so I. It's it's an interesting thing to like, you know, show this character that's you know James Dean's character like a, almost a, I mean he is like a stereotype of like, what your parents are afraid of their kids you know like, getting drunk and and getting arrested and all that you know and then acting really volatile, but then you know slowly his character kind of like opens up over the course of the movie until like by the end he you know, we. Or at least I feel for him pretty deeply, and he's kind of. It's easy to see his, like that he's a you know a very sensitive and thoughtful person, and not really defined by that, you know, uh, drunken moment at the beginning of the movie. I think just as a grown person in 2018, now I have a lot of trouble related to supposed like bad boy characters who are actually really sensitive on the inside. I The first time I watched this movie, I was, I guess, like a freshman or sophomore in college. It's like for a film introduction class. And it's like, oh, he is very romantic and like a very sympathetic character and you feel for him. But now I'm just like, Judy, run. Oh, no. He's just going to be his a cat. dad. <laughs> Get a cat. <laughs> Um, I guess what I'm saying is I how the general public has taken like the whole James Dean, and then you were talking about in your reviews that he was constantly being compared to Marlon Brando, which is like a kind of similar, rebellious, really handsome, pretty boy sort of figure, but also, I think, embodied a lot of ideals that I don't think are very good anymore or attractive and what am I trying to say do you think like I mean is that the culture around this movie or do you think the movie is at fault there I think it's the culture yes I I see your question I think it's the culture around this movie like I'm not I really wouldn't dismiss what Ray is doing it was like such a pat thing but kind of just but there is like a thing where like the you know James Dean's character is trying to be that and there's I don't know. I mean, this is like the, the like, the balance of like movies forever is like when you're trying to depict like harmful elements of the culture. I mean, those elements take seed because they're attractive, and you know when you put already like kind of preternaturally attractive people into those roles that are already in behavior patterns that are already attractive for the culture at large. You know, are you critiquing them or are you just you know, does reinforcing that it, them? Yeah. Right, yeah. Are you reinforcing them by giving them a really pretty face and a sob story? Um, <laughs> I can't answer that. 
Because because obviously, right, you don't stop making art that depicts problematic things just because some people are going to be like, oh, yep, I want that. <laughs> but also, I don't want that right. anymore. Like, I don't want to watch like this a... movie. I don't want to watch this person. Like, <laughs> great. Develop into the man you're meant to be a bit. Leave, leave. I don't care. That's so, so horrible. Uh. <laughs> Just leave me to my cat and two wives. <laughs> I don't have time for your your growth as a man. Um, any final thoughts on Rebel Without a Cause before we we move on? I you know this one I I mentioned it at the at the beginning of the episode, but um, it's curious to me that this one is the the kind of uh most recognizable uh, titles out of Ray's uh, filmography. I, I agree that it's it's much more uh, indebted to James Dean than Nicholas Ray, but it still de- definitely carries those themes of mascul- masculinity that we've been talking about so far in the series. And I definitely it, it does have uh, it's remarkably ahead of its time for being 19 in 1955. I think that. A lot of the stuff it's kind of playing with, it doesn't necessarily come full circle, um, kind of like we've been discussing, but it's stuff that is uh, posed in it. Like, full-blown Teenage Rebellion was still a few years off. Well, this this kind of followed a, a trend like... Uh, there, there, there was This was a trend of kind of teenage delinquency movies, but this is the one that kind of stood the test of time just because you had... James Dean and Natalie Wood and and Salmoneo and and all of these kind of much more famous faces attached to it, but you know it, I I I still I st- still like I like it a lot or I like it well enough, but um I feel like a lot of these a lot of the the, the things that Ray is is kind of probing in this movie has been uh he's done in much more interesting fashions and in much more in interrogating fashions in some of the other movies that we've talked about. Was this your first time seeing this? It was mine as well. It was. So maybe you I'll... You had seen it before, Lydia? Yeah, no, I, saw, I watched it for a college class and I came away from it with a really different feeling. <laughs> Interesting. Was the, this... the different feelings being like what you were saying earlier, like you're not sure how you feel about the... Yeah, and also like so full troubled man. <laughs> that and also like actually putting it into the context of Nicholas Ray's filmog like not entire filmography, but a selected portion, you know, curated. And so kind of seeing like you said, Zach, he's explored this idea, I think, in more interesting, less <sighs> easy less iconic ways and then when it becomes iconic people just like ignore the critique or it falls to the wayside in favor of this like really beautiful man boy like who you do was it the um was it in a lonely place when you guys were reading the uh the reviews where they were basically talking the reviews had missed the point of the movie and they were like bogart seems like you know a real top-notch dude wasn't that one of them? That that's interesting to me, and I 
I feel like it maybe reveals just, I don't know. These critics didn't like teenagers based on your uh, reviews, and they were just, oh, Humphrey Bogart's older, so we're going to trust him more, which I think is, like, a really fascinating, like, dichotomy, even though, like, Humphrey's character in In a Lonely Place and is is much more depraved than, like, you know, the teenage characters here, even though the teenage characters are, you know, doing bad stuff as well. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's, sort of, like, really fascinating. I think it's also that the contemporary critic or the yeah the contemporary critics did really kind of missed what nicholas ray was doing in a lot of his movies um yeah (laughs) i think that it's been it's been really enlightening um reading reviews from all of the movies that we've done so far because even last week lydia with johnny guitar it's like Mm -hmm. the the way they they hated it yeah the way they described and talked about like joan crawford in that movie was really demeaning She's not feminine enough. Isn't that what one of them said? Something to that effect? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, what do you think he's doing? I don't know. Like, I, I think that's always, like, really interesting is, like, the older reviews of iconic movies before they were iconic. Or in the case of In a Lonely Place, a movie that never became that and iconic. I think we also have the um, benefit of a tour theory and the ability to see all of his films very rapid fire next to each other, which critics in the fifties wouldn't have had. So there's also this thing about like access <laughs> and the ability to reevaluate a particular director and his themes. Yeah. And that's, and that's very true. So it's, it's, I, I, I it seems like Nicholas Ray has become, I mean, we, we read a little bit, I think in the, in the only place review about the Cahiers du Cinema guys really Kind of, kind of catching on to him but it seems like he's more of a director that really uh started to garner a lot of um praise and admiration uh a little past when he was kind of working i mean it, it wasn't like he was unsuccessful while he was working but he kind of really started to garner a lot uh afterwards i don't know i think maybe something now now that i've seen more i kind of consider and I think you do too, Zach. Like, this is maybe the least thematically interesting of his, but they are, like, very big, bold, simple to grasp themes, and this is the one that everybody really liked and has become super iconic and memorable. So there's something about that, too, I think. there was, There's not enough talk about lusty men in this one, though. <laughs> <laughs> there was no good ballads of the lusty men. I think Plato was pretty yeah. lusty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on Twitter at, at, uh, at, bleh, at Twitter at, on Twitter at Cinematary, <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> at Cinematary. I'm tired. Um, <laughs> and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary, where we post all of the episodes, all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Next week, we will be concluding our Nicholas Ray series with 1956. Uh, 1956 is <laughs> bigger than life. You got this. <laughs> Which seems like we're going to deal with another breed of uh, weird masculinity with James Mason just judging from the clips that I've seen. Uh, And don't forget, I mentioned it at the beginning, but please, if you have some suggestions for our listeners' choice uh, series coming up, we have three episodes looking for some movies to fill those slots that you guys think that we should be watching. So uh, 
we, I, I laid out the rules at the beginning. Um, you can also find them on cinematary.com, but pretty much just shoot us an email at zach at cinematary.com with a couple movies that you think we should watch and then a little bit about yourself, where you found the podcast. We want to hear from you guys and, uh, you know, get, get a little bit more involved. Know who you are. Yeah, definitely. But uh, until next week, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you uh, 